Against Disease. I am one of your hosts, Cody Weston. And I'm Kavita Chapla. And joining us today is uh, one of my esteemed colleagues from the uh, Johns Hopkins Psychiatry Residency, uh, Dr. Kate McFarland. Hello, and thank you for having me. Uh, thanks for being here. We are going to discuss healthcare in transgender populations today. This is an underserved group of people, and I've actually learned a whole lot from working in the sex and gender clinic at uh, Johns Hopkins. That's something that Dr. McFarland has been quite passionate about. We brought her here to help us understand how people can better care for those of us in our lives who are transgendered or think they might be transgendered. And so before we start getting into the transgender health part of it, I wanted to start off with some definitions, if we can. So, Kate, can you break down the different definitions that anyone might need to know for um, an understanding of transgender people. So um, going through sex, gender, gender identity, gender expression, and sexual orientation. Well, why don't I just first say that traditionally we think, we have thought about sex and gender as being synonymous with one another. I think that as our culture has sort of brought into the idea of things beyond heterosexual males and heterosexual females, we've come to a more fluid understanding of what that means. And I think it's really helpful and important to make a distinction between sex and gender, particularly as we think about identity. Sex is biologic, Mm -hmm. essentially. Sex is your chromosomes. Sex is not just limited actually to XY or male or XX female. There are chromosomal abnormalities where people have maybe too many sex chromosomes or too few sex chromosomes. People who have too many sex chromosomes we might refer to as intersexed. And so these are people who rather than having a clear development of a vagina or a clear development of a penis over the course of their physical development may have genitalia that are more ambiguous. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting thing to bring up, not only the concept of intersex individuals, but also this idea that chromosomes don't necessarily line up with uh, what somebody's assumed sex would be even before the cultural advent of understanding these other forms of gender expression, things like the uh, androgen insensitivity syndrome where someone has XY chromosomes, but because their body does not respond as expected to testosterone, they are for all the world very much looking like any other female. They just have reproductive organs that are inconsistent with traditional female development internally. Right. And I think that's an interesting point, sort of a segue on what we're talking about. But for anyone who has taken developmental biology of mammals, you would know that the default sex of the human animal or any mammal is female. You actually have to have some different enzymes and different genes provided by the Y chromosome to actually develop male genitalia. So it's an interesting point that you bring up that if you were insensitive to androgens, testosterone being one of the androgens, you're not going to see that testosterone. And even though you're genetically XY, 
or your sex is male, you will develop more female looking external genitalia. Yeah. And this may be apocryphal, but I've heard tales that even a lot of models and women who are considered extremely feminine in the traditional sense turn out to be XY individuals with this androgen insensitivity syndrome because it tends to lead to traits that our culture desires like height and that sort of thing. Height, thinness. Yeah. Uh, narrow frames. Yeah. That's a little bit beyond my scope of knowledge. Yeah. It's not my, uh, not my area of expertise either, but. So to move on to the other definitions sure, that sure, we were sure. talking about. So we've sort of defined sex and talked a little bit about some of the variants of what the binary of sex can be moving into gender. Gender, we have traditionally thought about it as being binary, um, as being male or female. For People who are transgender, their gender or their sense of themselves, their internal sense of whether they are feminine or masculine is actually at odds with their biological sex. So by definition, a transgender woman would be biologically born XY and be born with male genitalia, but have an internal sense of being female. Sexual orientation is different than gender Mm. or sex. Sexual orientation simply means who you're attracted to. Mm. So people define themselves according to their sexual orientation in different ways. We all know heterosexual. You are someone who is attracted to the opposite sex. Mm. If you are homosexual or lesbian or gay, then you almost exclusively are attracted to the same sex. I think for people who are not used to thinking about gender in a way that that is inclusive of transgender people, the concept of sexual orientation becomes a little bit more confusing because people will ask themselves, well, do, do I define my sexual orientation based on my gender identity or based on my biological sex? For the LGBT community, being homosexual could mean that you are a transgender man or of biological female Mm -hmm. genetics who identifies as male, who is attracted to either trans men, other trans men Mm -hmm. or cisgender or men who have a gender identity that aligns with their biological sex. And that's where I can see where it would get confusing because these are ultimately two different questions. Who am I and what sort of person do I want to be with? I can see where, especially in the stages prior to transition, it might be confusing if someone calls themselves homosexual, but is attracted to people who look like the opposite sex to them and something like that. And just to make sure that we're clear on all our definitions, some people might not be aware of the cisgender nomenclature. That's that's just someone who is essentially comfortable with the gender that they were dealt initially. So their internal representation and their uh, external sexual features are congruent. That's exactly right. So, I mean, on the bright side, that means everybody out there gets an additional label if they want it, but they didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it is kind of a big deal to think, wow, I actively or subconsciously have, I've accepted the gender that's associated with uh, my sex um, that was determined at birth. It's something that we don't really think about and kind of take for granted. Yeah. It's sort of like, you know, the idea of like, when did you quote unquote, choose to be straight. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't really, uh, that, that's not an active decision for people who are in the majority, it seems. 
Right. Well, I mean, that's sort of a feature of being in a majority is that you don't have to think about Mm -hmm. your identity. It's reflected back at you by most of the people who you meet. So we've talked about gender. We've talked about sex. We've talked about sexual orientation. We've mostly already talked about gender identity. Gender identity is the internal sense of how masculine or how feminine or where along that spectrum you identify. And gender expression is how you present to the world. So someone might have an internal sense of themselves being female. Mm -hmm. They may have a more masculine, traditionally masculine way of dressing or of speaking or in their body language or how they interact with the world. And so that's gender expression, what other people see. These are important uh, concepts to grapple with. Moving into like why this is important, why, why should uh, we care about the plight of people who are transgendered? Why is this important? Being transgender is a part of the human experience in a broad sense. So, you know, I think you don't have to be a medical professional for it to be relevant to you or for it to you know, be part of your repertoire of how you know how to interact with people. From a medical standpoint, I think it's extremely important to be familiar with because being transgender automatically means that you interact with medical professionals in a way that is unique. People who are not transgender, who have a body that aligns with their internal sense of who they are, don't need to think about whether they want to undergo medical treatments to alter their body in some way to bring that more into alignment. And so transgender people are in the unique position of having to approach medical professionals in order to bring their body in alignment with who their identity is. And I think it's really important for medical professionals to understand how unique of an experience that is to the transgender community. I can't even imagine how scary it must be to have something that's so central to who you are be something that is being potentially gatekept by people that some, in some cases you may never have met the people before who are responsible for adjudicating this decision. That's exactly right. I think all of us are familiar with interfacing with medical professionals in awkward ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, those of us who are biological females have to go to the OBGYN, we get pelvic exams, we have pap smears, we have breast exams, all things that are pretty uncomfortable. Men may have rectal prostate exams or genital exams of their own. Doctors routinely will ask you about your sex practices or your substance use practices as a routine part of providing good medical care. Transgender people are not only talking about parts of their body that they that they may actually feel very uncomfortable with and in fact feel very dysphoric about, and that's a term that we can talk about in a little bit, but they're also having to make requests of doctors to change those body parts, and doctors get to make that decision whether they rubber stamp it or not. Yeah. That's something that... Like you say, most of us don't ever have to think about, I'm trying to put myself in the position of like, if I had to go ask somebody else, if I could have the genitals I wanted, that just sounds like an absurd and horrifying situation. Yeah. And I think for many people it is, and it's deeply uncomfortable to 
talk about. And so I think good education, whether that comes from medical school curriculum or residency curriculum or being a practitioner who is responsible for your own continuing education, learning about the needs of transgender people, I think even regardless of what specialty you are, is is pretty critically important because of that unique sort of interaction that they're going to be having with you as a medical provider. I do think this is a good time to bring in one of these related questions. I hope that we'll have listeners both within and without the medical profession. For those of us who are not practicing in healthcare, how can we best make either people who have identified as transgender or if we're just going to try not to make the assumption that people aren't transgender, how can we make people more comfortable in our day-to-day to do what they need to do to live a fulfilled life with regard to their gender expression? It all starts with attitude and approach. I think that doing your best to approach them with love and curiosity and interest and humility. And I mean humility in the sense that they're automatically having an experience that those of us who are cisgender will never have. I think it's the most important thing because it gives them space to have their own unique experience without having to worry about justifying it or explaining it. I think I am someone who identifies as cisgender. I like to work with transgender patients, and so I work with them in that context. I also am pretty active in the Baltimore LGBT community, and so I've gotten to know people who are genderqueer or non-binary or transgender outside of the professional setting. And I think the thing I most commonly hear that people who are transgender or gender fluid or somewhere on the gender spectrum say is that it's really hard for them when their families or their friends ask them why they would choose to be this way or why they would choose this for themselves. And I think that's a really painful question for them because to them, it's not a choice. It's their identity as it is just like I wouldn't choose to being a Caucasian female as my identity. They wouldn't choose being transgender. They are transgender. To me, it seems sort of self-evident with all the societal pressures to be a certain, you know, heteronormative standard air quotes kind of way. I don't think very many people would ever wish upon themselves a path that is going against the flow and causing them to be the target of so much negative attention. It seems to me that this whole idea of choice is one that can be really harmful. And it seems like the science has in large part put some of these things bed in terms of showing that there are some fundamental differences in the biology of people who identify a certain way, showing that this is in some ways the product of uh, genetic expression, and this is not something that people are just walking down the street one day and deciding that this would be a, a fun time. Sure. And I don't know that I think, apart from unusual endocrine or hormone disorders like we've mentioned, like androgen insensitivity, people who are transgender don't necessarily have clear that we can identify 
genetic hormonal disorders. I think that talking, I think that it's really early in the scientific process. We, we really just don't know a lot scientifically about what is happening differently developmentally for people who have more of a spectrum or more of a transgender or non-binary way of sort of defining themselves. We do know that it happens across cultures. Right. Um, There are the Hijra in India who play a very particular role, both in the Hindu religion and in the culture of India. There are two spirit people in sort of first nation cultures in the United States. So we know that it sort of spans race, Mm -hmm. the gender non-binary or transgender experience. But I don't think we can really say why that happens. Right. And I, I did want to get back to the idea that, I mean, people aren't necessarily defined by the levels of testosterone and estrogen in their bodies. Anyhow, I think that there's a vast variety of levels, even among cisgender people. Yeah. They're, you know, cisgender women, people who identify as cisgender women have wide ranges of how much estrogen and progesterone they produce. They may have endocrinologic disorders or polycystic ovary syndrome and disruptions in their menstrual cycle, but they never have this experience of questioning their gender or having the feeling that they're in the wrong body for their gender. They never have that experience. So it's, it's really hard to, we just don't know why this happens. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to drag you too far off into the woods of the why or the how, because I think one thing I want to make sure we talk about at length is this idea of regardless of where it comes from and what the uh, explanation of this phenomenon is, the fact of the matter is people who are transgender are at great risk of a lot of negative health outcomes in part because of the stress of being in that position and being in a society that is not so accepting and that by intervening and providing health care and support, we can improve a lot of those outcomes. Yeah, that's exactly right. We have a fair amount of epidemiologic information about mental health experiences and outcomes of transgender and gender non-binary individuals. We know that, for example, that transgender individuals have suicidal thoughts much more frequently and at higher rates than non-transgender individuals. We know that suicide, actually committing suicide rates, are higher. We know that people who are transgender adolescents report bullying at higher rates than cisgender kids. There's been a fair amount of of studies that have been conducted so far about violence that transgender people experience. This has mostly been collected by the Transgender Day of Remembrance. This is a organization that has compiled news reports of transgender individuals being murdered. And there have been surveys that have gone out that have asked people who have experienced violence that was non-lethal about past violent experiences and people who are transgender 
seem to report violence against them, both by people they know and by strangers, at higher rates than people who are cisgender. It sounds like even if we were in a society that was 100% tolerant and accepting, this is still a situation in which someone has to take extra steps to be the person that they feel they are. So there's like an intrinsic level of stress. And then I feel like there's this massive extra extrinsic stress put upon people in this situation because of uh, these cultural attitudes. I found some more stats by the National LGBT Health Education Center. It was a survey done by, I think, the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force. And so I'm just going to give you guys some of these statistics, and then you guys can respond and react with uh, how you feel about them. So 57% of transgender people experience rejection from their family. That's terrible. It's huge, yeah. That's, that's crazy, just to be rejected for your identity. 53% are verbally harassed or disrespected in a place, uh, in a public place. I don't have the statistics in front of me, but I know in several states it's perfectly legal to fire somebody for their gender identity or, and I think sexual orientation as well in a lot of jurisdictions. That's right. And plug right now for Title VII, which is being reviewed by the Supreme Court. This is the law that was enacted in 1965, creating a number of protected classes, including nationality, ethnicity, sex, that protect people from discrimination in the workplace. And there is actually a lawsuit, RG and GR Harris Funeral Homes versus EEOC and Amy Stevens. That has made its way to the Supreme Court for review. A transgender individual was fired from their job at a funeral home And so they essentially are suing their employer for firing them because they are transgender. And so the debate that the Supreme Court is weighing is whether gender identity is included in the 1965 language of sex as a protected class. And so... Wow. Yeah. So as we've talked about those definitions before that language doesn't really meet the needs of our current understanding of these concepts. I mean, this is another case, like there's so much in, uh, in government and older texts where it's like people weren't having this conversation, so how would they have thought to include it in the language? But it, it seems to me that it's clearly, in, clearly congruent with the spirit of that language. Well, that's the argument that, that the, the litigators are bringing to the Supreme Court. The defense and some of the more conservative members of our Justice Department are making the argument that you have to follow the language of the law as it was intended at that time, and it could not have possibly meant gender to be included in sex, and therefore being a gender minority is not a protected class. Wow, that sounds like such a technicality. (laughs) It, it, it does sound like a technicality. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's a reason I went into medicine and not law. Yeah. Because I would find this very difficult yeah. to deal with on a professional basis. Most I actually just want to talk a little bit about suicide in particular. Sure. And the rate of mental, and the high rate of mental, of adverse mental health outcomes in transgender individuals. Absolutely. So... There are folks out there who are critics of the gender-affirming approach 
of medically helping people to align their bodies with their internal identity who say that the increased rate not only of suicide, um, but higher prevalences of major depressive disorder, of substance use, of inpatient psychiatric hospitalizations in transgender individuals means that they are mentally ill, Mm. that the gender experience that they're having is itself a mental illness that needs psychiatric treatment. Yeah, and that's, I I think the central thesis there is we have a mismatch between someone's external body and their mind, for lack of a better word. Right. And so you could either quote-unquote fix the body or quote-unquote fix the mind. My understanding, though, is that there's never been any effective treatment other than gender-affirming therapy for people who are feeling gender dysphoria, which is the portion that I think everyone, I hope everyone on both sides can agree that feeling intense dysphoria about your gender is a problem that people ought to be helped with. So I just want to say something about scientific evidence and how we do research. Getting funding to do research on topics like LGBT mental health and certainly transgender mental health has not been all that successful until probably the past decade. There have been folks who have been doing it for that whole time, but it's not a subject that people want to kind of bet their careers on. There have been some very famous people who were pioneers in the field of sexual identity and gender identity back in the day in the 1960s and 1970s. For example, John Money, Mm. who ended up receiving a lot of heat throughout the majority of his career. And then one particular case, which ended in tragedy, ended up sort of reversing a lot of the progress that his work had made in this field, at least in the public eye. So as society has been become more accepting and more open to the idea of different gender identity and different gender experiences, we've been able to make more research progress Mm -hmm. in this area. There are a couple of studies that I think are really important to think about. And that one of the first ones that I'm thinking of was a fairly large study that was done in Sweden. And I believe it was Sevenson in 2011, who was the publishing author. And basically, they looked at a national registry of Swedish healthcare hospitalizations, both for medical and mental health. And everyone in Sweden is assigned a number that, like a national, like we would have a social security number Mm -hmm. that can link people across different types of registries. So the criminal registry, the hospital registry, medical registries, um, economic registries. And so you can trace the same individual over time. And so what they did is that they chose all the people who were hospitalized over about, I think it was 25 to 30 years, who were hospitalized for at the time, it was gender identity disorder for a lot of that study, which was dsm 4 And what that essentially meant is that they were being hospitalized for surgery. 
And so what they did is they, from that time on, looked at all the instances of arrest, hospitalization, times when substance abuse treatment codes showed up in their hospital records. And they did find that even after gender-affirming surgery, people still had higher rates of suicide or inpatient hospitalization Mm -hmm. than sort of their cisgender counterparts or their controls who they were matched to. And they used about 10 cisgender controls of both the pre-affirming sex and the post-affirming sex for each individual. So they had a pretty robust control group. Yeah. But even though suicide and hospitalizations remained higher in the transgender individuals, if you break it down by decades from the late seventies, I think to maybe the mid eighties compared to the second half where people were followed from the mid eighties until probably the late nineties or early two thousands, the hazard ratios for suicide actually went down in the, in transgender individuals. So there seemed to be a time trend in how, likely people were to commit suicide after or attempt suicide or be psychiatrically hospitalized after surgery. And so the tentative suggestion that that study made is that we can't really say anything about how effective this surgery is at treating depression or treating distress, but it does seem like people are doing better Hmm. as time goes on and as more legal protections for transgender individuals were coming into place in Sweden, and as it was becoming more socially acceptable to be transgender. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. It's been really interesting to see how much the culture has changed just in the last couple of decades with respect to LGBT issues. I mean, I'm sitting here as a white cisgendered male talking about this, but I mean, I remember when people being LGBT of any sort was it was common on like cable and network TV sitcoms for that to be like the butt of a joke and now that would be like unheard of I feel like at least in mainstream content and of course the legal protections is something that's gone I mean we went from gay marriage being completely unheard of to being legal in the entire United States for example I think they're currently trying to fight that in South Dakota (laughs) The point being is that it sort of calls into the question the model that gender dysphoria is a mental disease only that needs to be treated only with mental health modalities. Mm -hmm. We don't have really any evidence that modalities of treatment that focus on getting people to see the reality of their biologic situation and sort of desist in their gender dysphoric feelings, like conversion therapy, which is the psychotherapy that allegedly helps people accommodate to their biologic sex works. In fact, what evidence we do have sort of suggests that conversion therapy actually has worse outcomes than no intervention. And it really doesn't touch suicide or other mental health outcomes as far as we can see. Okay. So if we're looking at the hard facts, what what it looks like right now is 
gender affirming treatments are essentially the only thing we have that does treat gender dysphoria, at least partially. That's right. There um, have been a couple of studies that have come out in the past few years that show people having better mental health outcomes um, following gender affirming surgery. A lot of these studies, there, so there are a number of different studies. A lot of them are small. Interpreting them is complicated by the different standardized measures that they're using. There are a lot of standardized tools out there that measure depressive symptoms. There are a lot of tools out there that measure quality of life. Many of them are showing improvements in self-esteem, decreases in depression, improvements in sort of internal quality of life and self-concept. But as we get better at our surgical techniques... Um, these surgeries, particularly female to male affirming surgeries have very high rates of complication. Hmm. Even today, they're very complex. They're multi-stage. And so some of the quality of life scores in these studies get impacted by increased physical disability Hmm. and difficulties with employment and maintaining employment after surgery that are at least in part attributed to increased physical disability with things like incontinence or chronic pain after surgeries, even though people are reporting better sort of self-esteem internal quality of life. So interpreting these studies are complicated. There are some studies that are starting to come out from the Olson group at the University of Washington that have been done in children and it's not necessarily looking at gender affirming hormones or gender affirming surgery in these kids but simply their parents affirming them in their gender identity wow and they took this group of transgender kids and they compared them to cisgender kids and they rated them all on measures of anxiety depression self-esteem and quality of life and they're in the cohort of kids who were transgender who weren't supported by their parents they they did poorly they had higher levels of anxiety higher levels of depression lower self-esteem lower quality of life when parents started affirming their kids they started to look like their transgender kids and their transgender identities they started looking like cisgender kids Hmm. so they're Depression scores normalized, their quality of life scores normalized, their self-attitude or self-esteem normalized. They did still have higher anxiety scores Hmm. than cisgender kids, but they seem to do a lot better. Wow. That's impressive. I mean, that's powerful evidence showing that, showing the message that shouldn't probably be a surprise to people that accepting, um, someone for who they are is going to make them more comfortable than being upset about it and excluding them and alienating them, I guess. When you put it that way, it makes a lot of sense. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, look, we live in a world where we still have to convince a lot of people that the earth is in fact round. So I don't think we can overstate the obvious in some cases. (laughs) Not only is it round, but it's a globe. Right, right. But Kavita, if you want to do some of the questions, I feel like yeah, I'm hogging yeah. all the content. No, no. I mean, it's a very interesting discussion. It, what we just talked about, it makes me think about how transgender people are in such a dangerous position because 
the treatments available to them aren't even um, that good. As you were saying, there's a lot of complications and complexity with uh, surgery or even with hormonal replacement and things can have unintended side effects. But yet, you know, these treatments are still very crucial to helping them feel better. And then I think also about how a lot of transgender health is related not only to their disconnect between their gender identity and their sex, but also due to all of the external, like social, political, economic things. Uh, if, if you're struggling with this conflict between your assigned sex and your gender identity, and then people are also actively bullying you and making you feel bad and making you feel like it's an unnatural thing and discriminating against you. I can't even begin to imagine how difficult it must be to feel well in that situation. Yeah, that's a really good point. One thing that I will mention that I found interesting in my search of the literature on this topic is that there is a psychological model that has been used to understand why racial minorities and economic minorities have higher levels of higher stress scores, worse substance abuse rates, poor mental health outcomes. That has been sort of developed into what's called the minority stress model, which basically is about it's sort of pretty straightforward. It, it is. It, it means what it sounds like is that <laughs> if you are a minority, you will have more stress that will impact your health globally. Yeah. A lot of researchers are now applying that model to how they understand mental health and health outcomes and transgender folks. And I think it's pretty useful. I wish that was something that was more integrated into the mainline training because that's not something that that we're exactly it's hard to talk about i think public health specialists do this a lot better Mm -hmm. than we physicians do i recall when i was a medical student reading this book called the status syndrome which was a nonfiction book that was basically written about this whitehall study that took place in london in the 70s or 80s and it looked at health outcomes of employees of Whitehall, which is one of the standard sort of government office buildings in London. And they looked at people from high up in the hierarchy, hierarchy of the workplace to all the way down to the cleaning people. Uh And the lower down you were, the worse your health, health outcomes were. And that was controlled for smoking, exercise, a number of different sort of health determinants. Hmm. And one of the things that they concluded is that the more ability you have to sort of direct your own life, the more authority you have, the more ability you are to be self-directed and avoid certain pressures that other people don't have the luxury to avoid, your health will be better. And so I think that we see this borne out in a number of different populations you know, for transgender individuals who I think are some of the most highly discriminated against people in our society right now, it makes total sense that their health outcomes would be worse. Absolutely. I mean, we were talking before about the chances of them being excluded from their own families. I mean, I can't imagine Mm -hmm. that having something so core to your support network being at risk could possibly be a good thing. 
Some of the other stats that really surprised me were that 40% of them said that they were harassed when presenting their ID. I've never thought about presenting my driver's license to someone like at the airport and being harassed for what information was on it. Yeah, this is another really unique experience to these individuals because I'll just speak for myself. My driver's license photo is 10 years old and I look a lot different than I did 10 years ago. And so if you are someone who has received hormone therapy and are now looking significantly different than your initial driver's license photo or have had surgery or have a much different gender expression than before, people get questioned on, you know, is this really you? Is this really your name? And it leads to really awkward discussions that most of us don't have to have around our IDs. Yeah, absolutely. One of the other statistics that I thought was pretty shocking is uh, related to economics. So transgender people are four times more likely to live on less than $10,000 a year compared to the average American. And they have two times the rate of being unemployed compared to the normal rate of unemployment in the U.S. I suspect that's likely multifactorial. I think if you have an interrupted start in life because your family kicks you out of the home because of your gender identity, that's going to make it a lot more difficult to get a college education and get a good job. It's going to make it a lot more difficult to complete high school. If I recall this correctly, in the violence surveys that were filled out by transgender respondents, a number of the violent situations that were encountered were done, happened in sort of the context of sex work, which is actually not unfortunately all that uncommon among these folks because there's not really, they haven't found any other way to make a living. Yeah. Wow. I mean, if Which you're... leads to higher rates of you know HIV, blood infections, uh, venereal disease. So yeah. But if you don't have a way to survive, you're going to do what you have to do to raise money. And so I can see why people would put themselves at that risk. And we, we also talked about how people are actively being discriminated against at other sources of employment to the point where it might even be, in some cases... Dangerous to go to work. Well, sure. Absolutely. And perfectly legal to eject somebody from the job just because they come up to HR and say that they are changing their name to reflect their gender expression. I'm having a lot of realizations as we're talking. And I, I'm i thinking right now about how race, class, and gender are kind of the three big ways, among other things, that people exert power and influence over each other. And as we're talking and learning all these facts, I'm realizing that transgender people are kind of on the wrong end of um, the power spectrum for each of those things altogether. I'm sure that transgender people who are racial minorities have even more hurdles to pass through. And it sounds like they generally make less money and have less sort of buying power than um, people who are cisgender. The whole gender thing also comes into play um, in the ways that they're probably discriminated against for not being sort of part of the traditional majority heterosexual cisgender population. Right. It does seem like there's just a confluence of so many factors that there's no way we'll be able to go through all of them in an hour. But I just, Mm -hmm. I think of some of the simple things like the the pressures we put on people, like these gender reveal parties that everyone's uh, so stoked about these (laughs) days. It's like, are you going to have to retract it a few years later? (laughs) I actually saw on the internet there was somebody who, uh, I think it was in Britain or something, somebody posted in the newspaper. It's like, we were mistaken. It was actually, the gender reveal was wrong. (laughs) Like 10 years later, 20 years later, whatever. 
So that was kind of wholesome. But that's yeah, that's neat. That's neat that they went back and did that. Yeah, but it is like maybe we should just have a species reveal. Let people know if you're having a human or getting a new cat. As I reflect on what we've talked about so far, I think as someone who is a mental health provider, obviously I'm sort of looking at this through that lens. And when I reflect on the history of mental health interfacing with transgender individuals, I think that this open question, I mean, that is still open for some and closed for others, is is the distress of being transgender, does it need treatment that can only be provided by mental health? Or is that distress coming from a need for biologic and social accommodation that we are not providing as a society? Absolutely. I would advocate for anybody going through any kind of major life transition that they could benefit from mental health support of some nature. But yeah. it, it seems to me self-evident that all these societal pressures have to be the bigger piece of the pie. I think that this segues into an interesting discussion in the field of transgender healthcare in general. Right now, per WPATH guidelines, and that is the World Professional Association of Transgender Healthcare Providers, mm-hmm. people caring for transgender people, of whom some are actually transgender providers, that the guidelines for starting, well, certainly for gender-affirming surgery, require the care of a mental health provider. Hmm. So mental health providers are, by definition, gatekeepers into gender-affirming care. Now, there are people out there who make the case that there's no role that there really should be no role for mental health providers in transgender healthcare because it's not a mental illness. And, you know, looking back over the history of how my profession has interfaced with transgender people, I I have some empathy for that Mm -hmm. position. I think the reason that I disagree with it is because there is such a higher rate of poor mental health, health outcomes in these people, similar to how we are needing to become more cross-culturally savvy in mental health as our world becomes more diverse mm-hmm. and as we come become more of a global society, I think a minority population is always going to be a minority population. And there is a need, I think, for professionals who are well-educated and sensitive to the particular mental health needs of these individuals, not necessarily because they are questioning their gender identity or they have a different gender identity than their biological sex determines, but because of the different things they encounter. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think it does get close to another topic I wanted to address. People who are transgender have a specific set of health needs that could could present challenges that cisgender people don't have to think about at all. For example, being a woman who still has a prostate and needs prostate exams for their health. Right. Big example from the sex and gender clinic. And by the same token, a transgender man might, depending on the surgeries they have or haven't chosen 
or may continue to need pap smears and these kinds of things. And I think that we're going to find that as we grow more understanding in our care of transgender individuals, particularly as it pertains to hormones and interactions of hormones with psychiatric medications, that there's going to be a need for specialty knowledge in the care of transgender individuals who also happen to have a major mental illness. Yeah. Now that we've kind of unpacked all of these ideas, I want to... <laughs> <laughs> I want to take like the through you know like the bird's eye view and then slowly hone in on um, some of these things. So, my first question for both of you is: Say I have either a friend, a significant other, or a family member who tell tells me that finally has the courage to you know get uh, face all of these stigmas that they might expect I would throw at them and tell me that they're transgender. What should I do? What are some of the most important things I can do for that person that I love who has now told me that, that their gender identity is in direct conflict with the sex they were assigned at birth? I mean, this is very practical, but I think the first thing I would do is thank them for their trust. I think that's a huge deal for someone to decide to disclose that, especially for the first time. Next, I think, you know, I think be curious, you know, how long have you been thinking about that, you know? How long have you been aware of that? How can I help? What pronouns would you like me to use? Pronouns is one of the biggest things, I think. Can you talk more about that? Sure. So one of the first things I ask people in the gender clinic, both in the adolescent gender clinic that I am rotating through and also in the sex and gender clinic, is I ask people how they like to be referred to both in terms of their first name and in terms of their pronouns, because their pronouns may not match what I see. And I think helping people, I think it helps people so much to know that you are willing to refer to them by the identity they are, by the identity that they are, rather than what is comfortable for you. And I think that one thing I see parents and loved ones getting hung up on is being worried about messing up or saying the wrong thing. And so, you know, it's just easier to say their birth name or to say their, the pronouns that I'm used to, but it's actually, it's actually pretty invalidating for people while they're figuring this out, allowing them to guide you in terms of how you refer to them, I think is probably the single most important thing that you could offer them. That's awesome advice. I mean, I think that's pretty easy for anyone to implement. Yeah. I, I saw this on the internet and I thought it was a nice idea that, um, when you're filling out like uh, name tags at conferences and things like that, it can help to put your pronouns on there. Even if you are cisgender, because it normalizes that whole mm -hmm. process. Cause that, when I first started to see that sort of thing around uh, on the internet, I was like, well, that's, silly I think people could guess and then I realized well it doesn't matter to me one way or the other but mm -hmm. if I was somebody who couldn't easily be guessed for whatever reason mm -hmm. that would mean a lot to me I think yeah that's exactly right and I have started putting my pronouns in my email signature and mm. I wear a little button with my pronouns at work especially when I'm in, well, now all the time, but especially when I was in the gender clinic or sex and gender clinic. And there are a couple of different professional settings 
where, as you say, when I fill out name tags, I make sure my pronouns are on there. And it, I will say it is a lot easier for me as a cisgender person to do that in settings where I know I'm going to be encountering transgender people. And that's sort of the mindset that I'm in. Then for instance, when I go to the grocery store or when I'm in church or when I'm walking down the sidewalk, because the fact that you are doing that draws attention to you. Yeah. And I have the luxury of being able to choose to do it or not do it. And it really makes no difference one way or the other to my identity because people generally see me as a female Mm -hmm. and I am a cisgender female, but I think that it's something that a lot of people, both who are transgender and people who want to be allies have to think about very carefully depending on the setting, unfortunately. I agree. It is challenging. I think some things are definitely moving in the right direction. Like uh, in a lot of the clinics that I work in, I see uh, bathrooms that are just bathrooms or they actually say all gender bathroom, which is probably so comforting to somebody who has um, probably a lot of anxiety when they're trying to think about um, what bathroom to even use. Um, And, you know, just thinking about history, the fact that we now no longer have water fountains that are colored and whites, like we just have a water fountain that everybody can use. I'm sure that makes everybody of any sort of sexual orientation or racial background or socioeconomic background think, okay, this is everyone's water fountain. Um, So I guess we'll all probably have to think about ways that we can do that better. Uh, Thinking about myself, I feel like I definitely, whenever in the future I have power over medical information forms, I'd love to include, all, you know, um, sex assigned at birth, gender identity, uh, sexual orientation, things like that, uh, because I'm sure people who don't fit into that male-female um, so easily, it's probably really tortuous to think about how you're going to fill out that box. But I think, as you said, um, Kate, it's very challenging to actually do. I also think that I don't do a good job of normalizing a lot of these things um, that uh, we all should be doing. And that's kind of why I feel like a lot of transgender people feel like they have to educate their providers according to these stats, these wonderful stats that I keep referring back to. Um, 50% have to feel like they have to educate their healthcare providers about being transgender because they don't know enough. And then um, a certain percentage of transgender people, they... Get, are delayed in you know seeing doctors because they're um, they feel that they're being discriminated against or being cared for differently, and um, some just experience a lot of delays in receiving like normal things like prostate exams or uh, Pap smears because they're not comfortable in those contexts or maybe their doctor hasn't even talked to them about them because um, the, either the doctor feels uncomfortable or um, doesn't maybe remember that they still need those things. Something to think about, too, when you're asking about that information that I have learned from some of my patients is that if you are going to ask about sexual orientation, gender and sex, and have those things on a piece of paper, it's important to make sure that every person who handles that piece of paper, including Mm -hmm. medical assistants, technicians, nurses, physicians, any support staff, who interact with that piece of paper are savvy about what's on it. Yeah. And it seems like creating these kinds of cultures can be powerful. Again, I feel silly 
talking about these things as somebody who's in like every possible majority. <laughs> but hmm. like, I mean, if I'm signing up for a website and it's like male, female, other, even it's like, it, that makes me pause for a second and be like, Oh yeah, I guess, I guess there is other options. And, um, I guess like, is it Facebook that now has like a gajillion different genders you can pick from? It may. Yeah. I'm not on Facebook a ton. <laughs> does seem like just even those little sticking points where it's just like oh I mean it doesn't really matter to me but I guess it, it clearly matters a whole lot to some people and seeing that the option is there I, I mean I can't imagine being a person who's transgender the first time they realize that changing their gender expression is even an option must be a huge mm-hmm. moment mm-hmm. which kind of brings me to my next uh, hypothetical scenario so now I am a person who has accepted that I am transgender. What do I do next? What do I tell my doctor? What kind of uh, options are there for me to be a well transgender person um, and maybe to uh, create more of a connection between my gender identity and um, my physical appearance and my uh, genitalia? The approach will likely differ a little bit between how old you are mm-hmm. or based on how old you are. I think that physicians in general, including people who work almost exclusively with transgender populations are much more comfortable transitioning adults than they are children or adolescents. So I think that when you talk to your doctor, things that are going to come up are, do you want your name to be changed in the medical record? Do you, How do you want to be referred to in the medical record and when staff addresses you? I think that there are, and I'm going to be talking a little bit in generalities because I don't do the hormone and the surgical care, but there will probably be a, a gender history and a sexual history that is taken at that initial appointment and discussion about gender identity with your medical provider so they can get a sense of how to care for you as a whole person. And there will be a discussion of what your goals are for your body. So that usually includes trying to helping you decide whether you just want whether you want a hormonal intervention and top surgery, uh, which for transgender women means breast augmentation. And for transgender men often means a mastectomy and chest masculinization, whether you eventually want genital surgery. And so that kind of gives your physician a roadmap or at least the start of a roadmap for what the next steps will be. So I think that outlines what an ideal conversation would look like and things that both as somebody caring for transgender people and someone on the other side who would be transgender, what you would want to uh, make the talking points be. And um, the other major factor is hormone blockade, right? For, for prepubescent yeah, mm. adolescence. And uh, as you said, Kate, this is something that is more controversial. I encountered even in our sex and gender clinic 
that there were somewhat divided opinions about the best way to proceed and when it is and isn't appropriate to apply this. But uh, would you care to comment on what um, the concept behind hormone blockade is in this um, context? Sure. So why don't I talk about the concept and then I'll talk about the controversy. Mm -hmm. So the concept is pretty simple. The chemicals that we refer to as puberty blockers are basically GnRH-affecting medications. So that's gonadotropin-releasing hormone. It's basically the main hormone that your body starts pulsing to tell your body it's time to hit puberty. Yeah. And start it, going through the sexual maturation. It needs to trope your gonads, right? Which is to touch the reproductive organs and cause them to start kicking out whatever they need to kick out to make adolescence mm. happen. I've never heard that <laughs> phrase that way, but that's exactly right. <laughs> and so if you use this medication, it effectually, it, it effectively pauses puberty. And if you take them away, puberty in most cases restarts. And this is handy because... Uh, puberty happens during adolescence, which is before adulthood, and people are not necessarily fully equipped to make adult decisions before adulthood is the theory, right? That's right. So let's talk a little bit about controversy with this. So there are a couple of layers as I see them, and the most obvious one is true for any decision that would affect a pediat- the medical care of a pediatric patient, which is, you know, they do not have the ability to consent to medical treatment. Under the age of 18 in a lot of places or under the age of 16 in some places, they have the ability to assent <laughs> to medical treatment but not consent. And knowing what we know about brain development, we know that, you know, they are well before the final stages of full adult brain development. Right, yeah, the major thing that still needs to happen is the, the frontal region of the brain where all the executive development happens still hasn't gotten all the wires insulated, right? The executive or decision-making. Which is terribly important if you're making a major decision. That's exactly which right. Which in some cases can't be, well, in, I guess most cases can't be reversed. Right. So... The controversy about puberty blockade has a lot to do with some of the early studies of persistence of transgender identity in youth. So a lot of the early research had a very small percentage of youth who questioned their gender before puberty actually persisting in those ideas after puberty. Mm. And I'm sad to say that I'm not as familiar with the research, the early research on this topic, but um, I recently heard Diane Ehrensaft, one of the clinical psychologists out at UCL, it's either UCLA or UCSF, who has done gender work as a psychologist in children for many years. And her critique of that research is that the what was defined as gender questioning wasn't as well fleshed out as it is today. And this is actually a problem with a lot of figuring out who to call transgender and who to call gender questioning and who to call some other 
category. We didn't really have a great kind of sense of what we were looking at back in the day. And so her main critique is that when you look at the D sisters or the children who are more likely after puberty to actually have a gender identity that aligned with their biological sex, they were children who were saying things along the lines of, I want to be a boy or I want to be a girl. Okay. The kids who were more likely to persist in their gender identity were kids who were saying, I am a girl or I am a boy. So for her, that distinction was really critical. So the kids who were insisting and could not be dissuaded that they their gender was actually the one that didn't align with their biological sex were the ones who were likely to persist in transgender or non-binary identity into adulthood. So people get really worked up about the idea of blocking puberty in children because the thought is, well, so many of them are questioning their identity, but they're not going to be questioning their identity in adulthood based on statistics. But from her point of view, there's actually a way to tease that out and predict who is likely to desist and who is likely to persist in different gender identity. That makes sense. I mean, if it's an incompletely defined construct, um, it sounds like that was a, a big miss in the way the question was asked. The interesting thing about this is, and, and I think conceptually it's interesting that transgender and gender identity and sexual minority identity sort of get lumped together, but the acceptance and sort of development of the concept of sexual fluidity and gender fluidity kind of developed along the same time frame in our history. And so I think we were coming to understand human sexuality and variances in human sexuality around the same time we were understanding variance in human gender identity. And so these kids who were saying, for example, I want to be a boy, were more likely to have, you know, male interests as girls and play with G.I. Joes and they grow up to be lesbians. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, more, you know, so I think that we have a better understanding of this now than we did back then, but I think we're still quoting that research at face value at times. Yeah, and to call back to our earlier discussion, it's not, it doesn't sound like it's the easiest thing to get new research because it's, there aren't people handing out money hand over fist to investigate these questions. Right. I also want to be very clear that I think the decision to pursue puberty blockade or hormone treatment should be taken very seriously and with mm -hmm. careful consideration with a very thoughtful medical professional and discussion with the patient and their family, regardless of their age. I think it's important to be thoughtful no matter what. Yeah. I mean, I think that applies in any case that would have surgical or otherwise irreversible intervention. So I would hope that that would be something just intrinsic to good medical practice. But I do think it's worth right. pointing out that we're not we're not proposing that people willy-nilly start flipping these switches. It also has medical consequences for the transition process, puberty blockade. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that, for example, 
for transgender women, surgically, a vagina is created using the penis mm-hmm. and using the structures of the penis. And the depth of the neo-vagina mm-hmm. is determined by the length of the penis or is limited by the length of the penis. Okay. And so if you were blocking puberty in a biological male, that penis length is not going to develop the way it would have otherwise. And so you are therefore limiting, in some ways, the futures, the surgeon's future ability to develop a neovagina. And so I think this is a complex conversation no matter what side of the aisle you're on. That had never even occurred to me as a consideration. I mean, there are some things that are more readily apparent, like you would not necessarily have to undergo top surgery or as extensive top surgery if somebody didn't go through a puberty that took them in a direction opposite the one they felt. But yeah, it sounds like there's a lot more to it even there. There are definitely medical pros and cons. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kate, for discussing the nuances of transgender health. I think, as you said, the one of the main things is just to be thoughtful to be thoughtful as an ally, to be thoughtful as a transgender person, to be thoughtful as somebody caring uh, medically for a transgender person. That seems to be one of the big takeaways. I I do repeat the word thoughtful a lot. But I love it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some of this, I mean, it seems like the golden rule goes an awful long distance here. I mean, if you just treat people who are in this position the way you would want to be treated in that position... Yeah, you can do a lot of good. I think, you know, the main things that I would want people to know after listening to this is sort of like you said, if you know someone who is transgender, if one of your family members is transgender, if you are questioning your gender identity, to be kind and thoughtful to yourself or that other person, and that this is not something that has to be figured out in a day or in a week, or even in a year. I would also want people to realize that there are a lot of old ideas about this field, and it is a growing field, and one where a lot of new data is emerging, and that it's really important to stay current on that data, because it's really changing how we understand this, and how we understand the mental health phenomena associated with it. The third thing that I would want people to know is that I think it's really difficult to not blame transgender individuals for the epidemiologic data we have about them. We know that they have poor health outcomes. We know that they have poor mental health outcomes. I think it's important to understand that there are a lot of things that are set up not in their favor that explain that and not and that it's not intrinsic to some choices they're making or who they are. Yeah. I mean I think that's super important from a destigmatization standpoint of I mean all mental illness. We shouldn't go around blaming the depressed for having higher risk of suicide. I don't think anybody would ask for that. Well, thank you so much, Kate, for coming on. I definitely learned so much, and I'm excited for whoever listens to this podcast to get a ton out of it. Well, good. I'm so glad. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much, and we'd be glad to speak with you again at some point, um, maybe for updates, and uh, maybe we'll have some more positive things to say about where the field has gone. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) 